0: First, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And once you've opened to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, put your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Before the sermon this morning, we're going to read from two passages 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. While you're turning there, we'll remind you starting next Sunday, we will. Begin our annual series uh, for our lay elders, our voc- by-vocational elder, Pastor Brett. Um, they will be preaching through Christ in the Psalms. Pastor Zach will begin the series next week with Psalm chapter one. So you want to be here for that. Also, want to let you know that during that series, that'll that'll take us five weeks through the month of August, and then the first Sunday of September, which is the Labor Day weekend, there will be no Bible classes for those five weeks. Uh, So there will be church at 10.30 for the next five weeks. Uh, If you're here at 9.30, you will enjoy some music practice, uh, but there will be no classes uh, until the second Sunday of September when we will begin two new adult classes and uh, all of our children's and youth ministry. So, uh, but join us for the next five weeks as we, our uh, other elders, lead us in the ministry of the word. But this morning, um, we will finish our series that we've uh, been in for the months of June and July, series on the church. And our topic this morning, uh, which was planned months ago, is the topic of church discipline. So we will read first from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, to, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you that you have spoken to us, and we ask now, Father, that you would sanctify us in the truth, we confess that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, who is the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, who inspired both the prophets and the apostles to pass your word down to us. Amen. On August 25th, 2020, Forbes published an article by Brent Gleason, and the article is entitled, Nine Powerful Ways to Cultivate Extreme Self-Discipline. The article begins with this quote from Plato, the first and best victory is to conquer yourself. The article then gives nine ways to cultivate self-discipline. I want to quickly read them off to you. Number one, know your strengths and your weaknesses. Number two, remove temptations. Number three, set clear goals and have an execution plan. Number four, practice daily diligence. Number five, create new habits and rituals. Number six, change your perception about willpower. Number seven, give yourself a backup plan. Number eight, find trusted coaches and mentors. And number nine, forgive yourself and move forward. This is from Forbes, 2020, Nine Ways, Powerful Ways to Cultivate Extreme Self-Discipline. Our Western culture that we live in finds itself in a very interesting spot nowadays wherein we love and value discipline in certain areas of our lives and not others. It's very popular to admire discipline in certain spaces like fitness and healthy eating and accumulating wealth and working hard and building a brand and success in sports and music and entertainment and other forms of media it's very popular to admire someone who will work hard at these things and be diligent you know people uh, talk about you know how LeBron James takes care of his body or the Tom Brady diet or all these things where people think that these are commendable these are praiseworthy at the same time though our culture hates discipline in other areas Our culture despises discipline or self-discipline when it comes to sexual ethics. Our culture despises discipline or self-discipline when it comes to overvaluing money or neglecting family or church for work or other things. I would suspect... That in general, we are adverse to discipline in many areas of our lives because many, maybe even some of you, were never disciplined as children. Maybe you didn't discipline your children when they were young. Maybe some of you even have small children now that you refuse to discipline. It is fascinating, though, that even though we like to pick and choose where we want to apply discipline and not, our culture instinctively knows that discipline is a good thing. Discipline in work, athletics, education, it's valued, it's highly esteemed in our culture. I mean, even Forbes is publishing articles about how to be self-disciplined. But broach the topic of disciplining children. Broach the topic of being self-disciplined in sexual ethics. Broach the topic of church discipline. And many, including many Christians, will find you very unpopular. American evangelicalism hates church discipline. Many churches prove that they hate church discipline because they have ceased to practice church discipline. But is that the way of Jesus? That's the question we must ask together as a church today as we finish this summer series, this series on a kind of a practical theology of the church. We've been uh, in this eight-week topical sermon series asking the question, what makes for a faithful church? What are the essential elements of a biblical church? And over the last two months, we have answered those questions by thinking through topics like preaching, the sacraments, church membership, uh, the office of elder, the office of deacon and deaconess, evangelism. Last week we looked at giving of our tithes and offerings, and this morning we finished the series with the topic of church discipline. And so our cards are up front, right, by the very nature of the series itself. If a church does not practice church discipline, it is an unfaithful church, unbiblical. Church discipline is essential for faithfulness to the head of the church, Lord Jesus. We ask, what did the Lord Jesus teach us? What did he command us about church discipline? And what does God expect then from Christ's community church? Is church discipline an archaic or even unloving practice? Because that's the charge made against the practice of church discipline. It's archaic, it's unloving. Should church discipline be abandoned for a more culturally sensitive approach? What does the scripture teach us? about church discipline. The first point that we must make about this topic is that God has always disciplined his people by removing them from his blessed place. For all of human history, God has disciplined his people in the manner of removing them from his blessed place. In our call to worship, Pastor Mike read from all of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam fell in sin and humanity with him. And at the end, in verses 23 and 24, Pastor Mike read where Yahweh banished Adam from the garden as a result of Adam's sin. Genesis three twenty-three through 24. Therefore, Yahweh God sent Adam out out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He, that's Yahweh, drove out the man. God is active here. God drives him out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As a result of Adam's sin, his rebellion, Adam is removed from the Garden of Eden. He is driven out from God's blessed place. In a similar way, Yahweh banishes Cain after Cain murdered his brother Abel. Genesis 4.16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Adam goes east of Eden from the garden. Cain goes away from the presence of Yahweh, east of Eden, in his sin. So, in sin, Cain, like Adam away from the presence of the Lord. After God gave his law to his people at Mount Sinai, their law-breaking, when Israel would break the law, break the covenant, that would result in God's discipline, oftentimes death. You read through uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and those who murder, those who commit adultery, those who uh, don't honor their parents, those who break the Ten Commandments, are uh, Israel was to enforce capital punishment for breaking the law. Not only did God threaten his people with individual discipline, but there was also the threat of community discipline. When the Lord gave his law, he warned Israel that if they did not keep the covenant, that they would be exiled from the promised land. In fact, we talked about this a week or two ago in our Bible class. Not only does the Lord give the uh, stipulation, if you break the law, you will be exiled. He says, you will break the law and you will be exiled. And of course, we know that's what happened. Israel was exiled from the land first, um with the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians. They went into exile for 70 years until Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi brought about the restoration. Israel, Adam removed from the garden. Cain sent away. Israel removed from the promised land for breaking the covenant. Are you seeing this recapitulated theme? God Disciplines his people not because he's reached the end of his fuse. God disciplines his people because he loves us and because he wants us to flourish. And the only way we can flourish is if we, after confession delight in his will, and walk in his ways to the glory of his name. That is the only way humans can flourish. And when we live against his will and against his ways, it only leads to death. So God's, God's discipline is not he got angry and kicked the dog because he's had enough. God's discipline is his love to bring us back to himself so that we can flourish. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, don't just strive for peace, you have to strive, sorry, you have to strive for peace and holiness together, right? The holiness, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many became defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. That's Hebrews 12, 5 through 17. The author of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines his children because he loves them. That discipline, often manifested through removal from God's blessed place, is out of love in effort to bring the person to repentance and back into obedience to the Lord. Oftentimes, God disciplines his children individually through his providence. That is true. God does operate that way. But God also structures his kingdom in such a way that the community is involved in the discipline of those who profess faith. Israel was commanded to enforce God's law in the community. Also, like Adam, like Cain, like Israel and others, God's discipline often does involve removal from God's blessing in God's community. That's how the discipline is often enforced. So this is not merely an an old covenant reality, and we just read from Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, but this is also a new covenant reality. This was not only true... In the Old Covenant community of Israel, this is also true in the New Covenant community, the church. Listen to these words that we hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. And if you want to turn there, I'm about to read from Matthew chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 15. This is the passage that Pastor Kevin read at the Eucharist a few weeks ago. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, the Lord Jesus said this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to him, tell it to the church, them. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. So in this pericope, the Lord Jesus commands us to practice church discipline. The Lord Jesus says, if a member of the church, if your brother, is living in open, unrepentant sin, we must go to them and we must call them to repent. We don't believe in private religion. We don't believe in, well, that's none of my business. We believe in the words of Jesus that say when your brother or sister is killing themselves with sin, go to them. Call them to repent. And if they repent, praise God, you have gained your brother. mission Accomplished. If they repent, there's nothing else to do. No one else needs to be included in the conversation. They have repented. Mission accomplished. But if they do not repent, Jesus says, go to them again with two or three witnesses. And we notice continuity here between the old covenant and the new covenant. In Israel, a member of the community was not to be charged as guilty of sin without two or three witnesses. There was no he said, she said in the Old Covenant. There had to be two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Deuteronomy 19.15. This practice applies not only to the congregation, to the members of the church, but it applies to the elders as well. In 1 Timothy 5, 19-21, Scripture says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in, for those elders who persist in, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. First uh, Timothy 5:19 through 21. So when, when an elder or pastor is living in unrepentant sin, two or three must go to him seeking his repentance. And if he refuses to repent, he must be named before the church, Paul says, so that the congregation might fear God. Back to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says the very same thing about every member of the church. So this applies not only to elders, pastors, but it applies to every member of the church. That if a member of the assembly, of the gathering, of the body, of the church, continues in unrepentant sin, the church must be told about it. And they are to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what does that mean? That language is kind of foreign to us. That means if someone is living in open, unrepentant sin, a member of the church, one person goes to them calls them to repent, they refuse. Two or three go to them. Again, call them to repent, they refuse. That means, what it means for them to be viewed as a Gentile or a tax collector is that we are to view this person as if they are an unbeliever. Treat them like they don't know Jesus. Because in those meetings where the one on one and the two and the three and however those meetings take shape, when th- that person has been called to repentance, part of calling them to repentance is saying, if you persist in this sin, you are walking away from Jesus. You are saying by word, thought, and deed, I do not believe the gospel. I will not submit to King Jesus. I do not want to live like a Christian. They are saying that with their actions. And so Jesus is basically telling us to take them at their word. Treat them as if they are a Gentile, as if they do not believe. They have been warned that if they continue in sin, they are walking away from Jesus and they should be viewed as such. That doesn't mean we hate them. That doesn't mean we're rude to them. What does it mean? It means you treat them like you would treat anyone else that you know that doesn't know Jesus. What does it mean? It means a couple of things. And Pastor Zach read uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which said this, that to to view them as a a Gentile and a tax collector means, number one, they are no longer a member of the church. Because the Bible teaches that those who are members of the church are those who believe in Jesus, who repent of their sin And who follow Jesus. They're those who trust the gospel. This person has been warned that their life, that their pattern of life, is contrary to faith in the gospel. And they have said, that's what I want to do. So they are no longer a member of the church. Because you have to be a Christian to be a member of the church. Because they are no longer walking in faith or a member of the church, they are no longer welcome to the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist is not for them. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, warns us that to drink and eat of the bread and the wine apart from faith is to eat and drink damnation on yourself. And that many people have become sick and many people even died at Corinth because they were abusing the sacrament by taking it without faith. So it means they're not a member of the church anymore. It means they. They can't, they're not welcome to the Eucharist. And thirdly, it means that we do not have the same fellowship that we had with them when they were in covenant community with us. We do not give them the assurance of them feeling as if they are okay in their sin. Now, nobody's saying that they're dead to you or that you hate them or that you're evil to them, or that you're rude to them, or anything like that. Of course not. Of course not. We treat all image bearers with the respect that they're due because they're made in the image of God. But part of the discipline, part of removal from the blessing in the community, is to feel that pressure. To feel the pressure of the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And if you're going to persist in unrepentant sin, when you're being called back, you're walking in death. Your life is falling apart. The Lord is taking you. Why do I keep hitting this thing? Yeah. The, the Lord's plan is to break your heart by breaking your life. That's what it means to treat them as a, a Gentile and a tax collector. And listen, church, Jesus knows that this isn't easy. He knows that this isn't pleasant. Jesus isn't, doesn't have a cheesy grin on his face. As he speaks the words of Matthew 18, no one in his or her right mind enjoys church discipline. If you enjoy church discipline, you're sick and you need to repent. Seriously, that's messed up. This is the rod of discipline from the Lord for holiness. But the Lord Jesus knows it's not easy. He knows it's not Pleasant. That's why in verses 18 through 20, Jesus puts his own stamp of approval on this whole practice. Jesus says, where two or three witnesses have gathered to call a sinner to repentance, I am with them. This, this verse has been hijacked for so many silly things. Like when three people get together you know, to, to pray... It doesn't matter if we go to church or not, but we're going to get together and pray or have a Bible study. Jesus is with us. That has nothing to do with this text. This text is about church discipline. Jesus says, when you practice church discipline, I am with you. When two or three speak to call someone to repentance, they speak with the authority of Jesus. When the church excommunicates the unrepentant sinner, Jesus himself is removing them from his place and his blessing. That's what where two or three are gathered in my name means. It means church discipline is not an archaic, unloving practice. It means Jesus is the one who executes church discipline through his local church elders whenever it is done rightly and in faith. Now, We see that, the teaching of Jesus, a theme that's carried all the way back to the garden, Jesus himself explicitly commanding us to practice this. It's not just in Israel that removal from the community is discipline. Jesus says in the new Israel, in the church, it's the same thing, church discipline, in hopes of regaining the sinner. We see now Paul apply this in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 that we read at the beginning of the sermon. This is church discipline practicum. So if Jesus gives us the theory, Paul in 1st and 2nd Corinthians is giving us the practicum. He's applying it, applying church discipline. Paul in 1st Corinthians 5, you'll remember, is reprimanding the church for failing to address a man who is bragging about committing adultery with his stepmother. Paul says, even pagans would think this is sick. And you have done nothing about it. In verses 2 and 5, the text says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here, St. Paul applies the command of the Lord Jesus in the church at Corinth. This man is living in open, unrepentant, sexual sin. Jesus commands him to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means he is to be removed from church membership. He is to be Uh, his access to the Eucharist is to be cut off and they are to view him as if he doesn't believe the gospel. That's what they should have done. And it's strong here, isn't it? I mean, Paul says, the Bible even uses the language. See, I don't want to differentiate there. I don't want to just say Paul says and then someone tries to, to, to make a distinction between Paul and the Bible. When Paul writes, that's The Bible, that's Jesus speaking this, okay? So Jesus says this through his spirit, inspiring Paul. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. Remember what I said about people who enjoy church discipline. That's messed up. Jesus tells us to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in hopes that the discipline will save his soul. Jesus says something similar earlier in Matthew 18 when he says this, Matthew 18, 7 through 9, "'Woe to the world for the temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes.'" then with two eyes to be thrown into the fu- hell of fire, Matthew 18, 7 through 9. So uh, we could have discussion about hyperbolic language and what the meaning of what Jesus is trying to say, but Jesus is using strong language to get our attention. It is better to go to heaven without feet than to go to hell as the healthiest person who ever lived. Like the parable of the prodigal son who had to hit rock bottom in order to come to his senses and return to his father. Luke 15, 17. Paul says, the Bible says, Jesus says, It would be better for the unrepentant sinner in 1 Corinthians 5 to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It would be better that this man's life falls apart, that he never walk again, that he go blind. Whatever physical ailment might impair him as a result of his sin, that would be better than for him to be healthy for his whole life and spend eternity in hell. Give him to Satan his body so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church church discipline is not rooted in the self-righteousness of the church. You know, that's a charge that, well, you just think you're better than everybody else, you know. You guys think that you're holy, that you're perfect, and so you're kicking someone out because they're doing something that you don't want them to do. That's not the case. And if if a church is practicing it in that way, they are in sin and they need to repent. Church discipline is not rooted in self-righteousness, at least it ought not to be. The Lord Jesus gives church discipline with the goal of repentance in mind. We do not excommunicate unrepentant sinners because we think we're better than them. The church must excommunicate unrepentant sinners in hopes that they repent and return and obey King Jesus. See, that's what happened to this man. This man did repent, and the church, self-righteously, would not let him back in. So Corinth is messed up on both ends. Right? He's bragging about committing adultery with his stepmother, and they're not dealing with it. Then Paul gives him a spanking, and they finally deal with it. And then, because the church discipline works, it works repentance in the man's heart. He comes back repentant, and they won't let him back in. So Paul has to give him another spanking. In 2 Corinthians 2 5 through 11, he re- Paul rebukes the church for not reinstating the man. Paul says the punishment has been enough, and the church should forgive and comfort him. Church discipline, in this case, had been effective for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. And now the church must restore the man. The church is commanded to reaffirm their love for him so that he is not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The goal of church discipline is not to produce sorrow for sorrow's sake. The goal of church discipline is to produce sorrow that leads to godly repentance. The motive of church discipline is love. It is not hatred. It is not self-righteousness. It is love. The goal is not to overwhelm someone with excessive sorrow, but to turn his or her heart back to King Jesus in repentance. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul commands the church to turn the man over to Satan in hopes that his soul will be saved. And now that he has repented and the church will not restore the man, Paul warns the church not to be outwitted by Satan. Isn't that interesting? Turn him over to Satan. Now they won't receive the man. And he says, Satan's outwitting you. You're being tricked by Satan. You know why? Because Satan does not want church discipline to work the way that Jesus intended. Satan wants the church to feel self righteous, Satan wants the sinner to run and not repent. The church at Corinth was being outsmarted by the devil. They were being outwitted by Satan. Satan wants to fill the church with hatred and self-righteousness. But the goal of church discipline is repentance. That's the goal. So when the unrepentant sinner repents, our reaction must be forgiveness, love, and comfort. We must practice church discipline for unrepentant members of the church, and and then we must restore them in forgiveness, comfort, and love when they do repent, because that's what the gospel is. And because church discipline, the practice of church discipline, the means of grace that we call church discipline, is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. As a church, we must always call sinners to repentance because as Pastor Brett reminded us during the confession and pardon, we understand that we are all sinners who have repented. We don't think we're perfect or that we're righteous on our own. We are self-aware every Sunday as we say the words of the confession that we are sinners who deserve God's judgment in hell. That's who we are. And so church discipline isn't saying, we're better than you, get out. It's saying, you're running towards hell. Stop. I know what that's like. That's what I used to do. That's what my flesh still wants to do. We are repentant sinners. And we believe the gospel. The gospel that tells us that there is one true God. In three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this one true God created us in his image, and he gave us his law. But in Adam, we all broke God's law, and we are all guilty of sin. Again, Pastor Mike read the pericope at the call to worship, the fall in Genesis 3. Because of Adam's sin, we are all guilty. We are all in Adam. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We heard it once again in the Confession and Pardon this morning. 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Anyone who thinks they're not a sinner is Deceived. We collectively confess together that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. That we have sinned against God by what we have done and by what we have left undone. That we have not loved God with our whole hearts. That we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And because we are sinners, we all rightly deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. That's true of every one of us. That's what we deserve. But church, God offers forgiveness and comfort and love in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus who is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity Jesus who was made incarnate when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary Jesus who lived a truly human life yet without sin Hebrews 4:15 Jesus who always obeyed God's law in thought word and deed Jesus who always obeyed God's law by what he did and he left nothing undone Jesus who always loved God with his whole heart Jesus who always loved loved his neighbor as himself. This Jesus was righteous on our behalf. And then Jesus offered his righteous life to God on the cross. In our place, condemned, he stood. And the cross, Jesus' righteous life, His active righteousness and his passive righteousness on the cross. This is where we see the true and final discipline of God executed on himself. Remember, all throughout scripture, Adam, Cain, Israel, now in the new covenant church discipline, God disciplines, God corrects unrighteousness, God corrects sin and law breaking by removing his people from his blessing in his place. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus writing Adam's wrong when Jesus went out from God's place. He went out from Jerusalem into the wilderness. In fact, Matthew tells us that just like God drove Adam out of the garden, that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness that Jesus was tempted by Satan, just like Adam was tempted. But where Adam fell, Jesus stood. And Jesus corrected the devil with the words of Scripture. And it was outside of the camp. It was outside of the city. It was away from the temple. It was outside of God's place and God's blessing that Jesus was actively righteous for us. And then it was on the cross, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city gate, away from the temple, where Jesus was passively righteous for us. Jesus on the cross offered his righteous life to God. And on the cross, Jesus took the curse of sin for us, for the elect for God's people, for the church. Galatians three thirteen through 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We rightly deserve the covenantal cursing because we are sinners. We broke God's law, but Christ took the curse in our place. The penalty for our sin is not swept under the rug by God, but Jesus takes the curse. He takes the penalty. He takes the death in our place, and he gives us his righteousness by faith. God has always judged sin by removing the sinner, removing his people from his blessing in his place. Adam, Cain, Israel, church discipline. Church, God did this most fully and most finally with Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 13:12 says so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus went away from the temple, away from Jerusalem, away from the old covenant place of God's presence and God's blessing, and Jesus was cursed on a tree for us. In time and space, Jesus of Nazareth took our curse outside of Jerusalem. Theologically, Jesus was outside of the gate of God's blessing as he bore our sins on the cross. Jesus was removed from the community as he hung on the cross all alone and he endured God's eternal wrath for all of the sins of all of the elect. Jesus endured God's Judgment. Jesus endured God's punishment for the church. The result of that is that Jesus died. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Jesus died because Adam ate. Jesus died because you ate. Jesus died because I ate. And Jesus was buried. Don't miss this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' flesh was delivered over to Satan so that our souls might be saved in the day of the Lord. And God did save our souls when on the third day he resurrected the Lord Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is our declaration from God that our sins have been paid in full. There is no more sin left to atone for. On the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. And at the empty tomb, we see the Father declare, it is finished. And now everyone who will place their faith in Jesus alone will be saved from God's wrath against their sin. When we speak of faith, we do it often here. The Reformed tradition speaks of faith with three facets. That faith entails knowledge, assent, and trust. Those are the three components you must have to believe in Jesus. The first component of faith is knowledge. You must know who Jesus is, and you must know what Jesus did. Church, that is, at least in part, why our liturgy every single week is saturated with the gospel. That's what everyone needs. That's what every human being who's ever lived needs, is the good news of Jesus. Partly, that's the reason why we preach the gospel from every passage of the Bible every week here at Christ Community Church. We do so first and foremost because that's what it's about. That was the intention the Holy Spirit had behind writing it. But he did so because that's what human beings need is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus. What every human being who has ever lived needs more than anything is to hear the gospel of Jesus. But that knowledge is not enough. It's not enough to save you. There are plenty of people who know the story of Jesus or know the facts about Jesus, but they do not have faith in Jesus. You must take that knowledge of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and you must assent To that knowledge of Jesus. You must receive the story of Jesus as true. You have to take the knowledge to heart. You have to assent to the validity of these truth claims about Jesus. But even knowledge and assent together fall short of saving faith. You must know, you must assent, and finally you must trust You must transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone. You must rest the full weight of your hope for forgiveness and eternal life on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And if you have genuine faith, that faith will be revealed in your repentance. If the Holy Spirit works regeneration in your heart, if God gives you the gift of faith, the result will be that you will repent. There is no one who has faith that does not repent. Repentance does not bring about faith, but faith brings about repentance. When God gives you the gift of faith, you repent and believe. To repent means to confess your sin and to turn from your sin. In repentance, we acknowledge that we are sinners who need forgiveness and we continue to repent throughout our lives because we continue to sin. Until we are resurrected and glorified in sinless bodies, we are a repenting people because we are a sinning people. We are people who seek to obey God's law and when we fail, we repent knowing that Jesus already paid our debt. Jesus already bore the curse for us. Jesus already went outside the camp for us. If we have faith, that faith leads to repentance. And if we repent and if we continue to repent, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we do is try our best. We strive to obey King Jesus. We don't obey God's law so that our sins will be forgiven. That's impossible. It's only by faith in Christ that your sins can be forgiven. But when you have faith and when your sins have been forgiven, then it's from that position that God wants you to obey his law. From a justified position. And church, if we are going to obey God's law, if we are going to follow the word of Christ in Scripture, we have no choice than to practice church discipline. Jesus explicitly commanded us to do so in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. St. Paul recapitulated Jesus' command in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. In our Christ Community Church covenant of membership, every time we bring new members in, you hear Pastor Brett read this to us. We all agree together to this statement. If you are a member of Christ Community Church, you have publicly and audibly agreed to this statement from our membership covenant, that we will exercise Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, exhort, and admonish each other as occasion may require, that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but will uphold the public worship of God and the ordinances of his house. You know what that means? If you're a member of Christ Community Church and you don't call your brother or sister to repent, if you're a member of Christ Community Church and you don't come to church, you forsake the assembling of ourselves together, you're breaking the covenant you made with us. You agreed to these words based on what Scripture teaches and church discipline. Is a way that we fulfill our covenantal obligations to each other. It's not the only way, but it is a non negotiable way. Christ Community Church, we must obey Jesus over everything. We have no choice. It doesn't matter what the world thinks, it doesn't matter what Big Eva thinks. It doesn't matter what Western Christianity thinks. And I say this with the the most love and respect that I can. It doesn't matter what you think. We must obey Jesus. Jesus commands that we practice church discipline. If we return to that... Forbes article from the beginning of the sermon and review the nine steps for self-discipline. Hear them one more time. This is interesting. These are the nine steps from the Forbes article for radical self-discipline. Was that the term? Uh, Extreme self-discipline. Nine steps. Number one, know your strengths and your weaknesses. Number two, remove temptations. Number three, Set clear goals and have an execution plan. Number four, practice daily diligence. Number five, create new habits and rituals. Number six, change your perception about willpower. Number seven, give yourself a backup plan. Number eight, find trusted coaches and mentors. Number nine, forgive yourself and move forward you consider that list, those nine things, nine steps to extreme self-discipline that Forbes recommended, it's actually not far off. We see that God has given us these helps in the local church. Sure, Forbes uses some, you know, silly and culturally infused vocabulary, you know, buzzwords that are popular today. But whoever wrote this, There's truth in here, because as an image-bearer, God created us to need these basic ideas. In the church, we recognize our strengths and weaknesses. First and foremost, that we are sinners who need forgiveness in the gospel. In the church, we are warned against temptations, From the word of God. In the church, we have a clear goal and an execution plan. That clear goal is the glory of God and the good of our neighbors through the gospel of Jesus. The church gives us habits and rituals that help us practice daily diligence in following Jesus. The spirit, through the means of grace, these eight topics that we've preached on the last two months, two months, the Spirit, through the means of grace, changes our perceptions about ourselves. We have trusted mentors and coaches in elders, in deacons, in more mature saints, in older men and older women, in the church triumphant who came before us. And number nine was forgive yourself and move forward. Well, the truth is you can't forgive yourself. But in the church, we find the forgiveness of Jesus, and we find the path to move forward following the one who is the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we know that the gospel is never neutral, that it is always either hardening a heart or softening a heart. Father, we don't pretend to be sovereign. Your son, the Lord Jesus did not teach us to pray, my will be done. He taught us to pray, your will be done. So we don't know whose heart is being hardened through your word this morning and whose heart is being softened. And for those that you may be hardening with great fear and trepidation, we just humbly say, your will be done but for those you may be softening. Father, we ask that your word would be effective to bring about repentance of sin, to bring about understanding of your word, and to bring about obedience to to your commands. Church discipline is never easy, it's never fun, And it's not intended to be. And King Jesus knew that. That's why he assured us that when two or three gather to call an unrepentant sinner to repentance, that he is with us. And so, King Jesus, we ask, even in light of our current situation, as your church calls the one that we believe to be our dear sister. As we call her to repentance, Jesus, we ask that you would be with us. That you would break her heart. Father, that if necessary, you would hand her flesh over to Satan so that her soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. Father, we ask now as we come to your holy meal that you would strengthen our faith as we commune with King Jesus. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.